You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So when we open the Bible, there is a, a certain kind of posture that we need at the heart level that's really foundational to how we read it. Um, this is it's pretty simple, but it, it goes like this. To the extent that we find something strange in the Bible or, or unacceptable to our modern sentiments, we could just say, to the extent that we find something in the Bible we don't like, the problem is not with the Bible, it's with us. This means that we don't bend the Bible to fit what we think, but we submit what we think to the Bible. And that's because the Bible is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, the Bible carries the authority of God, and therefore, since God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, not us, what he thinks matters more than what we think. In a word, this is called creatureliness. As a virtue, this is called humility. And When it's lived out by humans like us, it simply means that we want to love what God loves and desire what God desires and pursue what God pursues because what God loves and desires and pursues is always good and righteous and true. And we see that in our passage today, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. On the surface level here, it seems like Jesus is simply responding to two different scenarios. But what actually is happening here is much more than that. Jesus in this passage is holding up for us a moral vision for the kingdom of God. Jesus shows us here in this passage what God thinks about marriage and children, and it's not the way the world thinks. This is a new teaching. Jesus here gives us a new understanding, and it goes back to God's original design. There are three things he says to us here. Number one, God made marriage. Number two, children have dignity. Number three, children will be blessed. Let's pray. We'll get started. Our Father, we ask again that you would have mercy on us now. Have mercy on us and lead us by your spirit as we come humbly to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number one, God made marriage. So Jesus in chapter 10 is now in Judea. And Mark tells us that Jesus is doing what he normally does when he's in a place surrounded by a crowd of people. He's teaching. And as Jesus is teaching here, in verse 2, the Pharisees come up, and in order to test him, they ask him a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And immediately, this is a controversy, right? This is controversial back then, and it's controversial right now. And what makes it controversial, at least back then, is what the Pharisees are really asking in this question. What they're really asking is about what the grounds are for a man to divorce his wife. 
Divorce was lawful and common and relatively easy in the first century world, and it was part of Jewish law. So the question here is not about whether divorce can happen. It's about when and why divorce can happen. And specifically, it's about when it's okay for a man to check out on his wife. Matthew, in his gospel, makes this part a little clearer for us. He tells the same story that Mark tells. And in Matthew, the Pharisees ask in Matthew 19.3, they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the, for any cause, Matthew adds that in there to help us out. See, during this time, this was a, a hotly debated topic among the Jews of Jesus' day. And there were, were two different schools of thought when it came to divorce among the Jewish rabbis. And so the Pharisees here are using that context as an occasion to trap Jesus. They had apparently, it seems, heard that Jesus was against divorce. And so they're trying to get him in trouble here a couple of different ways. The first way is that if, if Jesus is against divorce, that is politically problematic because Herod the Roman ruler in this area had divorced his wife to marry another woman. You guys might remember Pastor Joe walked through Herod uh, about a month ago. It's super complicated, right? It's very complicated. And when John the Baptist spoke out against Herod, he lost his head for it. And so the Pharisees could be trying to get Jesus in that same kind of trouble here. So maybe it's that. Or maybe if they had heard that Jesus was against divorce. Maybe the Pharisees here are trying to pin Jesus as being against the Torah. The Torah is what's called the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the fifth book, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, the Torah allows for divorce. And so if Jesus is not upholding the Torah the Pharisees want people to know about it, right? So either way, what's happening here is the Pharisees are working on their Jesus smear campaign, right? They're, they're trying to get Jesus in trouble. And so they say, okay, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Everyone's waiting for what Jesus is going to say. So Jesus asks them a question. He says, what did Moses command you? So see, if the Pharisees want to talk Hebrew scriptures, if, if the Pharisees are wanting to play Torah hardball, Jesus is like, what did Moses actually command you? And the Pharisees reply in verse 4, referring to Deuteronomy 24, like verses 1 to 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's the wrong answer, see, because that's not the whole story. Jesus comes back to that answer in verse 5, and he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And we should just stop right here for a minute because what Jesus is doing is profound. When it comes to the topic of divorce, the Pharisees refer back to a permission in Mosaic law. But Jesus 
refers back even before that to the intention of God in creation. Jesus goes back not to Deuteronomy. He goes back to Genesis, and he quotes from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus explains so that we know, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. See, the Pharisees, they want to talk about the how-tos of divorce. They want to talk about the rules and the details for how men can leave their wives. But Jesus eclipses their question of details by explaining God's original design for marriage. Yes, Jesus knows what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24. Divorce existed. Divorce is a concession to sin. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. See? To know what it's supposed to be, to know what marriage is supposed to be, we need to go back to the beginning. And when we do, one thing is clear for us. God made marriage. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is not the natural evolution of primordial creatures in proximity. Social contract theory does not work here. Instead, marriage is the vision of God in making humans male and female, two complementary sexual beings who become united as one both physically and spiritually in the act of of marriage. These two individuals, a husband and a wife, become no longer two but one flesh, and together they form an indissoluble union that is the literal embodiment of God's will in creation, and at the same time, it's a symbol of the end-time union between Jesus and his church. And out of that, out of all of that wonder comes life. This is where babies come from. That's what I'm saying. God made marriage. And there is nothing more glorious that we humans can do with one another as male and female. This is the ultimate horizontal relationship. But see, the Pharisees didn't understand that. And as a society, we don't understand that either. As a society, and and even inside the church, the common understanding of marriage is light years away from what God intended. And it's pretty easy for us to look around and figure this out. The pervasive understanding of marriage in our society is that marriage is about personal fulfillment. Marriage exists, so says our society, for an individual's personal happiness. And so marriage actually becomes a contractual agreement toward that goal. So much so that if that goal is not being met, if the marriage is not personally fulfilling to the individual, then that individual should get out of it. So says our society. Marriage in our society is viewed as simply the limited exchange of goods and services, 
that we define and then determine as either effective or ineffective toward a goal that we set. We, we can see how this works, right? If marriage, if, if the goal of marriage, if marriage is all about your happiness, then just keep trying it out until you're happy. And how dare anyone say that somebody can't get married? How dare anyone say someone can't be happy? Marriage, according to our society, is not a God-ordained institution that pre-exists the state. Instead, it's more like an attitude. In our society, marriage is how you feel about someone else. And this is not good, all right? We know this is not good. But it wasn't any better in Jesus' day, all right? I don't, don't think that the first century world was somehow more moral than our world is today, okay? It's just so much not the case. Because in the historical context of Mark 10, the Pharisees and a whole school of Jewish thought took, they took the merciful permission of divorce by Moses and they turned it into a license to divorce and they went crazy with it. One school of thought, one rabbinical school of thought encouraged men to divorce their wives whenever they wanted to for any reason. Even if she broke a dish or even if the man found another woman that he liked better. So what happened, what was going on in Jesus' day is that the concession to human sin in Deuteronomy 24 had become an absolute, no-fault, free-for-all, left to the human will. And as we could imagine in that day, it was women who suffered for it. That's what makes verse 11 so remarkable. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees had asked Jesus about divorce. Jesus lays out God's vision for marriage. But then the disciples are a little bit curious. They still want to have some questions. And so a little later, they're alone with Jesus in the house. And Mark says, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Jesus says this in verse 11. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And this is completely new. This is new, okay? There was no concept in this day that a husband could commit adultery against his wife because in the Jewish understanding, adultery was like a property offense. If a wife was caught in adultery, it was because another man had stolen her, as it were, which means that, by definition, adultery could only be committed against a man. Wives were not considered to have any right over their husbands that could be violated. But Jesus says here that when a man divorces his wife and marries someone else, he is sinning against his wife. A wife can be sinned against by her husband just as likewise a husband can be sinned against by his wife, which means that Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying that a husband and a wife are two parts who are equally bound to one another. This is not a hard teaching from Jesus. This is a liberating teaching 
from Jesus. Nobody in the world had ever said anything like what Jesus is saying here. But then later, the Apostle Paul thinks the same way in 1 Corinthians 7. He says there that a husband and wife equally share conjugal rights over one another. Paul says the wife's body is not her own but her husband's, and the husband's body is not his own but his wife's. This was radical. Nobody said anything like this but Christians. Christian marriage, see, has always been countercultural. Christian marriage honors men and women, and Paul raises the stakes even higher because he commands men to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which means that Christian marriage, okay, we got to get this, Christian marriage, marriage held in high honor, leaves absolutely no space for bad men to behave badly. And it leaves no space for decent men to do nothing when bad men behave badly. Christian marriage and those who love Christian marriage protect the vulnerable. Christian marriage guards against any spouse using the other spouse for selfish gain. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is good and righteous and true. God made marriage, Jesus explains in Mark 10. And it is absolutely, beautifully radical compared to the brokenness of this world. God made us for this, male and female. All right, what about children? Last number two, children have dignity. Jesus teaches about marriage and he teaches about children in verses 13 to 16. And in this second teaching here, Jesus, he's not responding to a question. He's responding to a scenario that involved his disciples. Apparently, a crowd was gathered around him and some of the parents presumably were were bringing children to Jesus, verse 13 says, so that he might touch them, which means that they were probably looking for some kind of blessing Um, from Jesus for their kids, but the disciples rebuked them. The disciples were turning the children away. They were pushing the kids aside. But then in verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Strong word. And maybe Jesus was indignant because he just went over this with the disciples in chapter 9. This is last week, right? Pastor Joe talked about this last week. Jesus said that receiving children in his name is like receiving him. We don't get more of Jesus when we push kids aside. We get more of Jesus when we welcome kids and become like them. Jesus here has to go over this all over again. He says, verse 14, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus has already surprised us because of what he said about marriage. But what he says here about children would have been unthinkable. Joe mentioned last week that in the ancient world, there was a very low view of children. 
That doesn't mean that most people didn't like children. It means that in the societal mindset of that day, children were not considered persons. In that day, the paragon of human existence was the freeborn adult male. They had the most value. Everyone else, including women, foreigners, slaves, and children, they were pushed out to the fringes. So no wonder why children are being pushed aside here as they're crowding Jesus. That was how the culture worked. That's how people thought. Throughout all of history, children especially have been pushed aside. And it is a fact about the Greco-Roman world. It's just a fact. Infanticide was a common practice in that day. And we're just learning more and more about this. Just, just a few years ago, some archaeologists in Israel discovered a sewer clogged with the bones of infants dating back to the Roman period. Hundreds. Culturally, it was acceptable to expose children you didn't want. That's how people practice in that day. Push children aside. It was culturally acceptable to push children aside. And we're still pushing children aside today. Okay, but how? Right? That's an important question for us. How are we pushing kids aside today? Because from the looks of things in America, there seems to be a lot of kid centricity. Okay? So, the biggest consumer market in our country is kid stuff, right? Especially baby stuff and especially baby stuff for new parents because new parents literally will buy anything, okay? This is like a fact. This is like almost true every time. And here's a test for you. If you're a new parent and you recently bought one of those things that warms the whites before you change a diaper, they got you, okay? Like, sorry, but they got you, okay? If, um, talk to me afterwards and I'll, I'll explain more. But it, there's, just, there's so much kid stuff, right? So much kid stuff in America. How in the world then are we pushing children aside? What well, has to do with our view of children, which is very different compared to past generations. There's a journalist Jennifer Sr., who talks about this in her book, great book, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenting. She says that today in our country, we tend to view children as just another piece in the American dream puzzle. Therefore, she writes, we have heightened expectations of what children will do for us. And we regard them as sources of existential fulfillment rather than as ordinary parts of our lives. In other words, in America, children are valued, but they're valued as commodities. In our society, children exist to make adults happy and to boost adult egos. Many Americans today have children because they think children will make their lives better. Hard stop. That is true. 
And if that's what children are for, then the implications will be terrible as they are terrible. Because as you parents know, parenting is a lot harder than it seems to be on Instagram. There, there are all kinds of joys. We had lots of joys yesterday at my house. But it's not all joy, see. And when many parents in our society find themselves in the hardship of parenting, when, when their kid commodities don't deliver the fulfillment they desire, the children get pushed aside, and that's if they make it out of the womb. Because in our day, every single day, 3,000 kids don't. The thinking goes, if the children get in the way of my happiness, push them aside. It's also a big reason why last year in our state, 16,600 children were in foster care. Just push them aside. Just push the kids aside. But Jesus says no. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Children have dignity. Children are a gift from God. Children are a blessing from God. Children are the only newly created eternal beings in the universe. So don't push them aside. Put your hand over your mouth and marvel. Don't get frustrated that they're not more like you, but instead understand that unless you become more like them, you will not receive the kingdom of God. Unthinkable what Jesus is saying here. This is absolutely radical what Jesus is saying. This whole thing, what Jesus is saying here, this is a moral vision of life under his lordship, and it's a completely new world. This is a new world that Jesus is talking about here. And in this new world, the children will be blessed. They will. Their point. The children will be blessed. We shouldn't rush past verse 16. We read here, and Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So after Jesus teaches about the dignity of children, after Jesus speaks a countercultural ethic, he bends down on his knees and he picks up these kids in his arms and he blesses them because the kids will be blessed. This means that Jesus cares for children in his words and in his deeds. Jesus cares for, he cares for children both in his position and by his action. The, the high view of marriage that Jesus teaches us the high view of, ch- of children that Jesus lays out for us here. It's just to be clear. You might hear me say these things, and you might think that I'm just up here talking about traditional moralism, right? It might, it might sound to you as if I'm just, you know, reciting traditional moralism. I just want you to know, though, that there is nothing traditional about this, all right? When it comes to traditional, 
okay? When it comes to the long-established way of doing things in this sinful world, traditional, if you want to know what traditional really is, traditional is rape culture. Traditional is infanticide. Traditional is misogyny. Traditional is the strong always oppressing the weak. Traditional is self-indulgence. It's diving headfirst into the concrete of an empty swimming pool because the two seconds in the air on your way down might be fun. Traditional is suppression and oppression. It's enslavement and abuse. It's lying and stealing and cheating to get whatever you want whenever you want it. That is traditional. All right, just so we're clear. That is traditional when it comes to this sinful world and its history. But what the gospel brings is fundamentally different. It's not traditional values. It's radical values. It's God's design. Sex as a glorious expression of, one, of a one-person union between a husband and a wife in covenant with one another for life. To the world, that is radical. To us, it's God's design. Embracing and esteeming the glory of women as human beings created in the image of God, full of dignity and honor and uniquely gifted by God with a variety of powers on which humanity demands. (laughs) To the world, that is radical. To us, it's God's design. Receiving and raising children as a blessing from God to be cherished and nurtured by their parents to be sharpened like arrows of righteousness for the good of our communities and the good of our world to the world. That's radical. Radical. To us, it's God's design. What we're doing here, this is what, what we're doing here, what we're about here as Cities Church in and for the Twin Cities, there's nothing traditional about it, okay? Compared to the tradition of this world, we are radical to the core. Radical in love, radical in sacrifice. We are like a new world has invaded the old. It is like we are turning the upside down, right side up, just like it will be when Jesus comes back. That's what we're about, okay? That is God's design. That is God's vision. It starts in our families. It starts in our marriages. It starts among our singles. It starts with our men and our women and with our children and from there to our communities. And one very practical need that is happening at work right now in our communities is caring for endangered children. So this is a very pointed application, a little different than most sermons, okay? Last year in Ramsey County, Ramsey County, there were 1,100 children in foster care with only 600 foster homes. The numbers are even worse in Hennepin County, where right now, right now, there are 1,845 children in foster care, and some of them, just, I mean, literally, they have nowhere to go. All right, just, it, the math is pretty simple. There, there are too many children in need, and there's not enough people willing to help. And I know, look, I know because you told me 
I know that in our church, so many of you are actively caring for endangered children. And I praise God for that. I thank God for that. And I pray that it increases more and more. I want to see it happen more and more and more. Several years ago, when many of us in here had, had the dream of planting this church, which happened, we're here, the church has been planted. Planting the church was just the beginning of what we envisioned. We wanted to plant lots of churches, more and more churches. And it's always been about what these churches are going to do in seeking the good of these cities for the glory of God. It's about doing everything we can to advance the gospel of hope into every corner of these cities so that every neighbor meets Jesus. And even if they don't believe in him, we don't want them to be able to ignore him, right? In the Twin Cities, in our Twin Cities, we want Jesus to be impossible to ignore. And one way we get to do that is how we care for children. One way we get to do that is how we care for children in need. And so I want to ask you to ask this question this morning. I want to ask you to ask this question, in what ways might God be calling me to care for children in need? It's not going to be the same for everyone, okay? We're all different. We're all in different seasons of life with different commitments. But there are so many different kinds of ways that we can be involved in this work. There are so many different kinds of ways that we can help. And so... I want you to ask the question, how might God be calling me to help, to help serve our cities in this need of endangered children? Here are two opportunities, all right? Number one, immediately after this service, Luke and Bethany DeLong are hosting a short informational meeting about a current adoption that they're involved in right now. It's in process. And they have exciting news. I want them to tell you, but let's just say that there is a mother in these cities, in this metro, who has chosen life because of people like Luke and Bethany. They can tell you more. They're connected. It's happening. They need your help. Would you go over here? It's going to be up these stairs in the library over here. Go after the service, after your commission. Hear about what God is doing there and ways that you can help. Second thing, Melissa and I, my wife and I, we're hosting a little gathering on Sunday night, June 10th, for anyone who's interested in foster care, okay? Um, so orphan care has so many different ways you can be involved. Foster care is one, and we want to talk about that with you. We'll, we plan to share our story um, in foster care. And we also want to provide um, all kinds of information for you about all kinds of ways at so many different levels that you can be involved in foster care. So if you're interested in that, email me, and we would love for you to come. Because the children will be blessed. That's why. The children will be blessed, not just by words, but by action. Both by Jesus in Mark 10 and by Jesus today through his people. Let's pray. Father, in this season of Pentecost, 
we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a fresh work of grace. Father, we ask that you would breathe into the soul of our church and give us a heart to care for the most vulnerable among us. Father, ignite in our hearts the kind of love and sacrifice that confuses the world. We're asking for, Father, give us the radical kind of love that makes no sense apart from Jesus. Do this in us, we ask, and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. The radical kind of love that Jesus calls us to share is first the radical kind of love that we have to experience. This is the radical kind of love that God shows us in the cross. This is the radical kind of love that we remember every Sunday when we come to this table. That even while we were sinners, when we had rebelled against God and we were alone, we were alone and without hope, Jesus, out of his great love, died on the cross in our place. He was crucified for us. He took the punishment we deserved. Jesus was abandoned for us so that we could be welcomed home as the sons and daughters of God. That's what we celebrate as we come to this table. This table is kind of like a weekly family reunion where we as the sons and daughters of God, all brothers and sisters, remember what Jesus has done for us, and we proclaim that good news to the world. So if that's you, if you're united to Jesus by faith, if you are a son or daughter of God, we invite you this morning to enjoy this meal with us. We're going to serve the bread first, which is gluten-free. Uh, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.